It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Uh, Those of you that follow The Tent know that I was sort of on a little bit of a sort of a a, a sabbatical for a while from uh, doing some new recordings and um, writing and so forth, and I'm just sort of getting back into it again and actually getting back into the hobby part of my aquarium adventure again. Um, Getting back into working working with my tanks, I'm setting up a new reef tank, going to reset a couple of existing aquariums. It's kind of a fun time. This this time of year, I call it aquarium season. It's when the weather starts cooling down and you can concentrate on doing things inside the house instead of, you know, wanting to be outside every minute. Of course, in Southern California, we do want to be outside a lot, but in a lot of parts of, parts of the world and parts of the United States anyway, um, people spend more time with their aquariums as the weather cools. It makes sense. Uh, and it's a time I get excited. There's different fish availability, um, there just seems to be more engagement with hobbyists and it, it's kind of fun. And I it get to the point where I'm thinking a lot more about how I set up my aquariums and the kinds of things that I do and how the, the decisions I make impact the, the fish that live in my aquariums. I talk about water chemistry a lot. Now, I am not a chemist, as we know, or a biologist by any stretch of the imagination, but I do have a above average interest in ecology within Um, natural aquatic ecosystems and how we can put that into our aquariums or embrace that. And one of the things I talk about a lot is the idea of functional aesthetics. And we've talked about this many, many times over the years. It's basically, it's creating an aquarium, which is comprised of natural aquariums, uh, natural materials, excuse me, assembled in such a way as to not only be aesthetically pleasing, but to enhance the aquatic environment, you know, either chemically, biologically, or physically. So they look cool, and they're also providing uh, some sort of other collateral benefit. Now, interestingly, I tend to stumble on stuff that reinforces this whole idea all the time. And I think it's largely because I'm pretty attuned to Uh, these kinds of little fun facts. And when I see stuff that reinforces my ideas, I'll often jump right into it. Now, not not too long ago, I was perusing a killifish forum. And one of the participants was talking about some new fishes that he obtained. And one was from a genus called Episimian, which is a weird little genus because it's a fish that falls genetically halfway between Epiplades and Aphiosimian, two very popular genera in the killifish world um, that actually have some interesting characteristics that they share with each other. But even more interesting to me was the discussion that ensued um, talking about how difficult this fish is to spawn, that it's only found in a couple of places in the Congo, and, you know, it got me thinking. Now, even more interesting was that it was in a region known for high levels of selenium in the soil. And that's really interesting. Now, selenium is known to be a nutritionally beneficial to animals and to humans at a certain concentration. I think it's 0.05 to 0.10 parts per million. It's essential. It's an essential component of many enzymes and proteins, and deficiencies are known to cause diseases. One of its known health benefits for animals is that it plays a key role in immune and reproductive functions. Okay, that helps with the difficult to breed part, right? 
Selenium occurs in soils that are associated with sulfide minerals. It's found in plants at various concentrations, which are dictated by the pH, the moisture content, and other factors. This is some stuff I found out by researching this. So soils that contain high concentrations of selenium are found in greater concentration in plants which occur in these regions. So that's interesting. So I'm doubtful that we know the specific concentrations of selenium in many of the you know, planted aquarium substrates out on the market. And most hobbyists aren't just throwing in, you know, that readily available tropical Congo soil that you can pick up at just about any local fish store, right? So how do we get more selenium into our tanks when you're interested in breeding a fish that apparently needs it? Well, botanicals could be a way. Like, for example, my memory hit me, the Brazil nut or the so-called monkey pot. Um, yeah, it's technically a fruit capsule produced by the tree Lysithus piscionis. Uh, it's native to South America, most notably the Amazon region. Astute, really geeky, you know, listeners to the tent will recognize the name as derivative of the family Lysithidae, which happens to be a family in which the genus Cariniana is located. You know, the Cariniana pods, one of our more popular ones. This family has a number of interesting botanical producing trees in it, doesn't it? It does. But okay, let's get back to this Lysithidae. It's also known as a taxonomic family, which contains the genus Bertholithia, the genus which contains the tree Bertholithia excelsa, the bearer of the Brazil nut. You know, the one that comes in the can of mixed nuts that nobody really likes and it's kind of hard to crack. If you buy it in the shell, you need a freaking sledgehammer. Well, anyway, yeah, that one. So uh, craving more useless, uh, you know, Brazil nut trivia, I have this for you. Because of their larger size, they tend to rise at the top of the can of mixed nuts from vibrations that are encountered during transport. So this is a textbook example of the physics concept of granular convection, which for this reason is frequently called, wait for it, the Brazil nut effect. I'm totally serious. You can look this up. So little useless trivia on Brazil nuts. But anyway, I'm getting way out of out of whack here. Let's stay back on this. So would it be possible to somehow utilize the so-called monkey pot, which is the, the fruit capsule, the Brazil nut, in a tank with fishes like these killifish that need selenium to perhaps impart some additional selenium into the water. Okay, it begs the additional questions. Well, how much, how rapidly, in what form? Wouldn't it be easier just to grind up some Brazil nuts and toss them in, or would the fruit capsule itself have the greater concentration of selenium? Would it even leach into the water? These are interesting questions. Where the hell am I going with this weird exercise? I'm just sort of taking you out on the ledge here, demonstrating not only my bizarre thought process that goes into these things, but how the idea of utilizing botanicals to provide functional aesthetics is at the very least a possibility to help solve some potential challenges in the aquarium hobby. Like this is something that we've done before with catapa leaves. You know, you've seen my numerous reviews on them and my, you know, questioning of the alleged health benefits that they're purported to offer fishes. Some is marketing bullshit. <laughs> some is legit. So could the same assumption be made for botanical materials like the monkey pot? I think so. I think it's worth, you know, investigating or experimenting, right? You know, obviously at my company, Tannin, we offer a fair amount of botanicals which find their way into tropical aquatic habitats around the world. Many come from regions where specific soil types are found. Perhaps they contain concentrations of various micronutrients or minerals which are beneficial to fishes in ways that haven't been thoroughly studied, or at least the connection between the two hasn't. We often hear from our customers how fishes seem to spawn not long after botanicals are introduced into their tank, or how they're seemingly healthier and more colorful, or 
Is it just the tannins, the humic substances, or other compounds found in the botanicals? There's a lot to learn here. There's so much interesting stuff that we we just don't know. We we have a lot of room to explore and to learn still. I think that one of the things that we're going to have to learn is that we don't have all the answers. What we're doing is still experimental. Even, you know, decade into the really the, the serious study of botanical method aquariums, we're still in one grand sort of science experiment. It's kind of interesting though. But I think it all goes to show you that there's so many ways to interpret how to create aquatic habitats. You know, streams and, and rivers are interdependent, dynamic habitats. They're interdependent with the, with the terrestrial environment. As the waters from the streams work their way through the soils, the fallen trees, the accumulated leaves, the branches, and the seed pods, the water absorbs tannins, humic substances, dissolved organics, and these other compounds, perhaps selenium, for example, which contribute to the now aquatic environment. Now, in many habitats, ones I'm obsessed with, the terrestrial habitats are seasonally inundated by significant rainfall that's common in tropical regions. And Igapo forests, for example, have significant amounts of trees. One study that I found indicated that over 30 species of trees are found in these areas, creating coverage of something on the order of 30%. And they're known to contain soils that are acidic in nature, yet low in nutrient content because they don't receive a seasonal influx of nutrients like regions called barzea, which are flooded by sediment-laden whitewater. So blackwater rivers, blackwater streams are very nutrient poor to some extent. And as a chorist, I find this dynamic environment really, really inspiring. Now, I know I'm all over the place today on this one because I'm just sort of trying to pound in that, that concept of functional aesthetics. And I think it's really important to understand that the terrestrial materials that we use and the terrestrial habitats where our botanical, botanical materials come from definitely have an influence on aquatic botanical aquatic environments seasonally when you know they flood and this interdependent dynamic this relationship between land and water is really amazing i mean you could literally spend a lifetime studying replicating and learning from these types of habitats and the chemical reactions that occur between botanical materials and soils and water and and never run out of new ideas or inspiration. They're constantly changing, they're emerging, they're evolving. And it's all part of the reason that I spend so much time pleading with you, my fellow fish geeks, to study, admire, and ultimately replicate specific natural aquatic habitats as much as you do, you know, those big aquascaping contest winner works. Study the wild habitats. Look for signs, look for parallels, processes, inferences that you can gain and any edge that you can gain on maintaining your fish. Take common fishes and keep them in an uncommon environment. See what happens. If every hobbyist just spent a little time studying some of these unique natural aquatic habitats and the relationships between the terrestrial and the aquatic, I think the hobby would be radically different. It's time for a little bit of a change, isn't it? Anyway, I'm going to get off this crazy tangent that I'm on and get back to playing with my aquariums, and I hope you do the same. Stay inspired, stay creative, stay curious, stay diligent, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman from Tenon Aquatics. Good to be back with you. Now look forward to seeing you on the next installment of the Tint.